Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. A lot of the ways in which you think of Jesus are extremely contingent on how you've been raised and your own culture that you live in. And so some of the ways I think about Jesus are fairly unrecognizable to medieval people and vice versa. And you go, oh, okay, well, in some ways, I'm probably on to some good things that they weren't on to. And in other ways, they're on to good things that I'm not on to. The Living Church serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Happy Epiphany, everyone. Yay, Epiphany. Now, listen, many of you have recently been dumped on with a bunch of beautiful snow across the U.S. Well, good for you. Um, I, however, am in my sunny Atlanta apartment, totally jealous of the winter wonderland which is seemingly at everybody else's doorstep. Mm -hmm. Well, I love seasons. I love the changes of seasons, the distinctiveness of each one. Different seasons and times bring out different flavors, different inner lives of the land and landscapes. And I think humans are similar. I think whole cultures actually work in a similar way. You know, different eras of history, different places show up or play down certain kinds of shapes that human life can take, certain imaginative landscapes and possibilities. And of course, certain virtues and vices stand out or fade into the background in certain places and times. The Stone Age and the Renaissance do not have the same flavor or precisely the same problems. But across space and seasons, This is the crazy lesson of the epiphany. We do all have one Lord. So how does this same Lord show up differently in different times and places? How does he take on different characters? Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Grace Hammond, author of the new book, Jesus Through Medieval Eyes. Grace is a writer and independent scholar of Middle English, contemplative writing, and poetry. And she hosts her own podcast, Old Books with Grace. Jesus Through Medieval Eyes is a remarkably enjoyable book. I really, really liked this book. Jesus jousting, Jesus giving birth, Jesus as doomsday judge, lover, mother, or knight. These are all common images for Christ in the Middle Ages. Not so common now. 
How might they help us in our time, in our season, heal our contemporary views of Christ himself, of justice and judgment, of love and lovers, of gender and sex? Okay, let me just pause really quick. This is like making an announcement during a liturgy. It's sort of like, when do I do it? When do I stop everything and say this? Let me just say, A brief word here for you, if you've never left a rating for our podcast, please take a moment and do that. It does help this show show up for others. Or if you like what you're hearing today, you think it's fun, edifying, entertaining, encouraging, send it along to someone else. Now, brush up on your middle English if you want to, but it's not required. We'll be working in translation today. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, I have an initial question for you. So people may not know this, but I run a time travel business and I am going to give you a promo code, Grace. The promo code is get medieval and you get, it's a 30% discount on all time travel vacations between the years 500 and 1500. So you, you can stay for a year. The rules are you stay for a year. You are comfortable enough you know, you're, you won't be in terrible poverty. You might get sick or injured, but it won't be anything life-threatening and you can, you won't be in horrible pain the whole time. So, you know, it's like, you might experience some moderate discomfort or pain from various things, but you won't die. You'll have a living and you'll come back in a year. Where would you like mm-hmm. to go? Go ahead and let me know. And I'll, I'll set it up for you. <laughs> I know immediately where I would like to go and I would go to Norwich, England, and I would like to go to the year, oh, somewhere between 1393 and 1400, let's say. And I would go and learn from the Anchorite Julian of Norwich who at that time had finished composing her her second version of her showings and who was giving spiritual guidance to folks who would travel to her cell in Norwich, England at the Church of St. Julian's in Conisford. And that is where I would go to sit at her feet and learn, well, figuratively speaking, stand at her window and listen to her talk. and learn about about God from her. That's who I would time travel to visit and would love to have a conversation with and be in medieval Norwich, stay there for a little while, maybe luckily meet Marjorie Kemp at some point, who was also traveling around. You could probably hear her coming. Wouldn't you could probably hear her coming a mile away. I think her wailing would precede her and or her preaching. And yeah. That's what I, that's where I would go. That's what I would do. If I went in the earlier 1300s, maybe I could travel to London and meet Chaucer himself, but he he's not the main event for me. I will talk with my people. I can probably set this up and we can probably get you a job at the Adam and Eve. If you want to work as a barmaid in the Adam and Eve <laughs> in North. I don't think I would like to, but thank you. Okay. Maybe, maybe some other job. So Grace, obviously, you know, a thing or two about the Middle Ages. You're a scholar of the Middle Ages and of literature. What originally got you to thinking, 
I need to write a book on the way medieval Christians saw Jesus. Well, I wrote my dissertation on one of the chapters in my dissertation was on Julian, speaking of Julian of Norwich. And she has this just astoundingly beautiful theology of Christ as a mother. And that was really new and surprising to me. I had not encountered that image before. I did not grow up in a very historically informed tradition of faith. And so the deeper I got into medieval literature, uh, the more uh, surprising and wonderful it was to see how much they loved Christ and how, and the shape of their devotion and how different it was from mine and yet how recognizable in certain ways and how much it spoke to me and, and what it was giving me. And so I encountered this theology of Christ as a mother. And after I left school, after I graduated, I began wondering what other images of Christ and metaphors and ways of thinking about him that these folks were thinking about writing about, you know, making images of that I could learn from. And so I started to think about different representations of Jesus in the Middle Ages And I had made this podcast series out of it. I have a podcast called Old Books with Grace. And at the time, probably only about 30 people were listening to my podcast. So it was a very limited population. But it really, the the great thing about that series was that it got my mind going. And I thought, I really want to keep, keep diving into this. And then I ended up writing a book about it, about all these different metaphors, images, ideas, modes of writing that show us um, some aspects of the character of Christ and some ways of reading scripture and some ways of interpreting that are pretty unfamiliar to us in modernity that were really exciting for me. And, and it was a really fun project. And can I just add that it was a really fun book to read? I just really enjoyed your book. It was easy to read, but not in the bad way. Not in the like, I've had three margaritas. I'm sitting on the beach. I don't care what I'm looking at kind of way, but I found it to be, and it's interesting to me too. So I found it, I I sensed that you had fun writing it. First of all, it has a lightness to it uh, as well as the scholarship. So that's what makes it easy to read. It's also accessible. You don't have to be a deep theologian in order to access the theology, the art criticism, the art history, you're, you're bringing it home for a a wider audience, but then also you, your motivations for writing, it seem to be partly devotional. In fact, I actually used it as part of my devotion time in the mornings, several times, it would bring me to a place of reflection or a, a a place of prayer. And you intentionally make that part of your book. So for folks who haven't read it yet, at the end of every chapter that's got this really fascinating theological historical exploration of, of Jesus through medieval eyes, there's a section that's, that's devotional. It has a devotional reflection. It has some questions to ponder, a scripture passage to meditate on. And I, I just wanted to say thank you. I found that really lovely. I thought that was a really interesting way to shape a book. And did you have as much fun as, as it feels like you did? Thank you so much for your kind words. And yeah, I did. I mean, obviously writing is always a interesting journey where a lot of it is really fun. And then a lot of it, you are in the midst of doing some serious reflection and working very hard. But overall, yes, the book was a delight for me. And it it was delightful to be in such close company with, I, I call them my medieval friends, uh, which is kind of cheesy, but 
it was wonderful to be in such close company with them, thinking seriously with them. And that was a real goal of the book for me too, was I think today we often kind of have too strict of lines between modes of reading. So we think I'm reading for information and learning here. And over here, I'm reading for devotion and shaping in my heart. And, and especially when we look at uh, the folks of the past, we often uh, bifurcate that really strongly. But for a lot of these writers, it's hard to do that. And so that was one of my goals for this book. And one of the delights I had in it was how can I help folks who are outside of the academy who haven't had this wonderful encounter with medieval literature that I've had? How can I help them encounter people who are so interesting and have so much to give us and so much wisdom about the character of Christ and, and so much, you know, powerful ideas about that can shape us and shape our spiritual practices right now yeah and give us a lot of food for thought and give us objects of love as we encounter Jesus and think about him in a new way in a, in a different way and so that was a major goal for me was bringing those modes of reading together and letting letting them speak to our hearts as much as to our minds yeah yeah and if people hear the title of the book and think, oh, this is a fun, but kind of niche interest. I'm just going to say the whole time I was reading, I was thinking this would make a really fun, very interesting, thought-provoking small group study at church. So I'm actually considering bringing this book at some point to my pastors and saying, can I lead a small group study going into some medieval characters, medieval friends of God? So I think it could work well just for the information of listeners might want to grab some for a small group study. I think a lot of this is meant for conversation for unpacking together. So I hope that you give it a shot. That would be really fun. (laughs) Well, speaking of your medieval friends, I would love to meet them through these images that you use with which you structure your book. And I'd love to start with one of your main images, which is Jesus as a judge. And, and the word doom that comes into play, which has a particular meaning, not like Indiana Jones and the temple of doom, but has a really particular meaning when medieval folks use the word doom. What can we learn from the way that medieval Christians pondered Christ and his role in doomsday? This was a very interesting chapter for me to write because I honestly was quite intimidated and was not extremely enthusiastic about approaching uh, Christ on Judgment Day. But it's one of the central images of Jesus, both in scripture and in medieval art and writing, especially earlier medieval art and writing. So the, the word doom in Middle English and Old English this is a word that basically means judgment. So we associate doom with like, prepare to meet your doom or, you know, some kind of the doomsday clock, you know, Mm -hmm. count down until the ending of the world. And so there's some of that there, but, uh, but it's really much more closely related to, we, we sometimes use the word deem today as, as a synonym for, you know, I, I deemed something to, she deemed it well done, you know, whatever thing. So that's the same, the same root word, but it's sort of archaic in modern English, but you still occasionally see it around. One of the most popular 
artistic renderings of Christ in the uh, Middle Ages was this Christ on doomsday picture. So Christ sitting on the throne of judgment, which medieval folks often drew as a rainbow. So Jesus sitting on a rainbow because he fulfills all promises. Um, And in front of him, the dead are rising from their graves. And on one side, you know, it's, it's a bit heavily based on the gospel of Matthew and the sheep and the goats. So on one side are the folks that Christ is recognizing. And on the other side are the ones that he is sending into hell. And, and so everybody's very, naked and everybody's, everyone's naked, except they have hats on, except they have hats on. I have yes. seen this. What is up with that? <laughs> the hats are in, are showing professions of people. <laughs> oh. So the main hats that we see are like papal tiaras oh, dear. and crowns. Because one funny thing about this image is that it is in a, in a such a hierarchical society, you know, medieval era was extremely classed, socially hierarchical, there wasn't much movement. But what doomsday paintings show you is that everyone, everyone, no matter how much power they have, is subject mm. to Christ's authority. And so you have these popes going into hell basically on one side because they were bad popes buck naked Uh, kind of like dante's divine comedy right where you meet all those popes in hell and you're reminded oh earthly power goes nowhere in the Mm. end it meets its terminus and and so that's one aspect of it and the other aspect is that these were these dooms day paintings were um, painted in parish churches. That was one of their, the main spots you would see them. If you think about it, it's a very funny thing. Doom paintings implicitly include you. You're there. You're one of those bodies coming out and, and all the people you're with are there too. And one of the the functions of a doom painting is that re- it reminds you that this isn't, you know, this feels judgment day, especially for us today, less so for them then it feels very abstract and it feels very future oriented, but the presence of the doom paintings at the heart of a community, the parish Mm. church reminds you that, that you are a neighbor right now. And that that's what the gospel of Matthew in Christ's own words saying with the seven works of mercy, are you, are you visiting the sick? Are you tending to the oppressed in the impoverished and those in prison and the stranger. And so that is what it, this is evoking. And so in the chapter, I, I have to wrestle a lot with fear and, and how we're supposed to deal with our fear when looking at this. But but it was a really fascinating chapter to write and provoked a lot of thought in me on what what does my role as a neighbor look like right now when I look at the face of Christ the judge, whose mercy and whose justice are two sides of the same coin. And who is, isn't he shown as wounded sitting on his throne in yes. judgment? His, his wounds are obvious. So in Revelation, medieval artists and writers picked up on the fact that when Christ comes again, it, it, it calls him the pierced one. And so his wounds are always on display in these judgment imagery. Even when he's wearing like a full robe, there's usually a little opening in the robe so that you can see his side wound and he's holding his hands up so that you can see his hands and his feet. And, and so what I realized as I was looking at these pictures of the wounded Jesus is that 
I had been thinking of Jesus, the judge as a sort of no more Mr. Nice guy moment where it's like, (laughs) all right, time to crack down. Let's get real. But the wounds of Jesus remind us that this is the same Christ who went to the cross and who, who lovingly chose to give himself for us. And so it's not as straightforward as, all right, let's get real. It's time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that, okay, if mm-hmm. that is the, if the justice of Christ is also in his wounds on the cross, then it's got to be a much fuller picture of justice and compassion than we're sometimes tempted to set the two against each other or understand one at the cost of the other. And so it was challenging and rich to look at those wounds. Yeah. Speaking of challenging and rich, you use challenging and rich images throughout your book. I mean, the judge, I would imagine, isn't the only image that you might have had a little fear approaching or you had to do some interior work, even as you're doing your research and you're working your way through it. The two that stand out to me like this are Jesus as lover and Jesus as mother. And in medieval Mm -hmm. art, they both use images and medieval literature uses language that can make us squeamish, but they were crucial to the art theology, the devotional life of that time. They weren't niche interests. These were Jesus as lover, Jesus as mother were crucial to medieval Christians. I'd love to start with Jesus as lover. And Mm -hmm. I wonder what you think medieval views of Jesus as lover have to say to a highly sexualized Western global North culture. And it occurs to me that just as we sort of have a lot of anxieties about being judged, and yet we need this image of Christ, the judge to heal in, mm-hmm. in part, our, our view of what judgment even is, or justice even is. Yes. It seems to me that Jesus as lover also comes to heal our notions of sex and being sexual creatures. So what do you think the medievals are teaching us here? Well, it's, it is, it's incredibly complicated for us to approach this image. Cause as you point out, we have a lot of baggage about it and they had a lot of baggage too. So we share that in common with them. Their baggage looked different than ours. So it's not, it's not the same, but it really, it was a central image, just as central as the judge image for medieval Christians, the most sort of the medieval scriptural bestseller was the song of songs. I mean, they could not Medieval theologians could not get enough of the Song of Songs, which is shocking to us because we tend to sort of put that to the side of our scriptural practices today. They were obsessed with it because they thought that it really showed the character of God's love for his for his bride, for the church, and not only for the church, but for each individual soul who is also Christ's bride. So they weren't really caught up with the gender dynamics of that at all. It applied Mm -hmm. to, to everybody as brides of Christ. And I think that's one way that we can learn from them is that sometimes we get really caught up as we think about Christ as a bridegroom, we can sort of over gender the image. And, you know, people have, have used that for marriage models in particular ways that have sort of harmed or hurt our ideas where you know, 
the man is always in Christ's role and the woman is always in the church's role. And that's true sometimes, but also that's not primarily how medieval people were using this image at all. They were, they were seeing everybody in the role of the bride. And so that puts men and women on a more similar footing as we approach this idea. And the other thing that is really interesting is that they loved that this uses bodily imagery yeah. so much. That was really profound to them. And, and what, what medieval writers like Bernard of Clairvaux or Gregory the Great had realized was that bodily language is so much more powerful in conveying intentional, specific love to us embodied creatures than overly abstracted, spiritualized languages. Mm. And so um, the use of bodily imagery was meant to convey how particular and how deep and how wonderful and surprising and um, specific the love of Christ is for each individual person. And if you've never read Bernard of Clairvaux, we're not talking about Jesus bringing us boxes of chocolates. We're talking about, we're talking about lovemaking. I mean, we're talking about the imagery yes. of lovemaking, caressing, like the language he uses. Yes. Breasts, is like, I mean, like legs, yes. like yeah. all of it, all the it, parts, all the parts they're reading allegorically. They really believed in the power of allegory to communicate truth in ways that Uh, So Gregory the Great actually calls the allegory, the bodily allegory of the Song of Songs, a a crane, uh, a device that that lifts our understandings up to divine things is how he describes it. And so it's a it's a very interesting but that that lover imagery is like a crane that helps us to understand the character of divine love, which is very hard for us to understand. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'd love to take a look, so to speak, at one of those images that I think can also bring us to Jesus as mother. And this is, let's say, a rated PG to PG-13 podcast. And and we're not ashamed and we're not prudish here, but we know that children might be in the car, for example. But let me just say that there's an image that's used repeatedly for Christ's side wound, where it's emphasized to look quite female. Yes. And I found myself, my reaction was a bit squeamish at first, seeing some of these images that you have in your book, but really moved and touched, especially as I was seeing those in the context of other images. Like there's an image of Christ undressing a soul mm-hmm. to, to, to make love to this soul. And then another image next to that, where the soul is bearing her own cross and Christ is just there with her, encouraging her and comforting her as she is suffering as he was suffering. So this, the co-suffering, the withness, the, the being a lover, but then this really particular female anatomical image for the side wound of Christ. What did you make of that? And what do you think you learned most from that? Yeah, it's a really tricky one. And I will tell you, if you Google search Christ's side wound as feminine anatomy, there are a lot of of medieval images of this. It was a popular motif in late medieval illuminated manuscripts and in prayer books. And I was definitely challenged by at first, 
I mean, I think at first all of us look at it and go, what am I supposed to make of that? That is so strange. Like, is this um, spiritual pornography or something? What yes, is this? No. And, and we're used it's because we're so, as you mentioned earlier, we live in this highly sexualized world where we're used to seeing body parts as purely sexualized. That's right. And this is not a sexual image. What it is, is an image of growth and uh, fecundity of the spiritual life. And so one, one of my favorite, favorite images in the church, which is associated with Jesus's mother, is there's um, Christ on the cross. And out of this side wound is coming a, a little tiny woman with a crown on. Aww. And like he's giving birth to a to a baby. And it's actually Ecclesia. It's the church. And so the when medieval folks were drawing Christ's side wound as resembling feminine anatomy, they were really interested in how Christ invites us into himself. So Julian of Norwich talks about this at length, living in Christ's side wound, dwelling there as a dwelling place. It's a home. And then, and then the other thing is Christ giving birth and his, his, the fruitfulness of his life and of his ministry and of his resurrected body. Mm. It's a complicated image. And one of the things that I've learned most from medieval folks is that images usually have multiple meanings. And so you have your first gut reaction and your instinct, but then you have to sit and think. And I think this is a really uh, rich invitation for us today is to return to being more comfortable with sitting and thinking and meditating and seeing what comes next out of uh, our initial reactions. And sometimes it'll really change. And that's what this image has uh, meant to me is thinking on the nature of fruitfulness, this image isn't saying something about his body as a man in, you know, Jerusalem, but it's saying something about his character as the best of life-giving feminine characteristics and of masculine characteristics as well. Hey listener, this is Amber Noel, the host of the Living Church Podcast. If you're new here, I want to extend a warm welcome to you personally, and to let you know that we've featured some really great episodes since we launched in 2020, including Marilyn Robinson and Rowan Williams talking literature, James K.A. Smith on living in time, and Stanley Hauerwas and Episcopal Church presiding bishop, also known as the royal wedding preacher, Michael Curry on football. Gotta have a little fun around here, right? These are some of our personal favorite episodes, and we invite you to listen after this episode at livingchurch.org forward slash podcast favorites. Thanks for being here. Welcome. Backtracking a little bit to Christ as lover, I don't think this is something you talked about in your book. Jesus as lover does it have any relation in any of the art you looked at or the literature to courtly love? Is there a courtly love element, which does relate to knighthood, which would be more like the singing songs outside the window, flowers, box of chocolate kind of thing, but it's more, it's much more than that. So can, can you, you're nodding. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. So in the book, I touch on this briefly, but I don't dive into it. There's a giant tradition of seeing Christ as a knightly, as a courtly lover, as a chivalrous lover. And so in the lover chapter, I look at this poem called Quia Amore Languio, which is an English poem with a Latin refrain. 
in its middle English, uh, this person is is wandering about through the countryside, which is, of course, a, a courtly, in a lot of courtly songs, people are wandering around countrysides and meeting random people, random allegorical figures. And this, this singer of the poem meets Christ. They don't know it's Christ yet, but it's a knight who has a wound who's sitting under a tree. And, and then this knight says this long poem to this person. And so it is very much of the aspect of Christ, the courtly lover who is, who is, you know, yearning for the lady who has disdained him. And that is of Mm. course us, (laughs) the people of the church and who have, who have looked away, who have turned away. And it's very much that ancient imagery of, of the faithful lover who waits in patience for his lady to, to attend to him, to love him. And so that was a a very popular thread in medieval poetry. In particular, you see this courtly lover aspect of Christ, which is the much more courting in the old fashioned sense of, of wooing the soul, warming her with his words and soul in Latin and is a feminine. And so it definitely plays with that idea of regardless of whether you're, you know, of your gender, it's that relationship that, that this image is drawing from. Yeah. You know, Grace, I was surprised at how moving I found the image of Jesus, the night it was, it seemed, I thought at first glance, it would be something that wouldn't translate that well to me, but this section from Piers Plowman that you share. I wanted to read just a few sentences. The narrator of the poem is, his name is Will, of of course, and he is with a character (laughs) called Faith. And Faith is explaining to Will what's going on. And a knight shows up for a joust. And the poem says, then I asked Faith what all this activity meant and who should joust in Jerusalem? Jesus, he said, and fetch what the fiend claims the fruit of Piers the Plowman. Liberium de Arbitrum has for love undertaken that this Jesus for his gentility will joust in Piers' armor, in his helmet and in his mail, humana natura. And you go on to describe a knight who jousts undefended, which I found extremely moving. Hmm. But what really stuck with me was that this knight is fighting for to, to rescue Piers Plowman, but also fighting to rescue his labor. He's fighting for the fruits of Piers Plowman's labor. This is fascinating to me. Why would an image of Jesus as a knight fighting for our labor have been important for medieval Christians? So Piers Plowman is a, just a fascinating poem. It is really kind of a wild poem, but what this image is is partially doing, one really interesting thing about it is that it's um, playing with the same, uh, this really rigidly hierarchical medieval society's expectations. So knighthood and knights, it, basically in medieval social thought, society was divided into what they called estates, three estates. So there were those who fought, the knights, the lords, those who prayed, the clerics and the vowed religious, and those who labored, those who worked. So plowmen, farmers, the serfs, the peasant class. And those, as I mentioned earlier, those were not things that you could pass, like pass in between. The clerical category is clearly the most porous, but even then 
you know, you, you probably wouldn't be a peasant who became a cleric that happened occasionally, but it wasn't, you know, a norm. So, um, a very popular image of Christ was Christ as a knight and, and it was often used in sermon imagery and in the harrowing of hell. And what Langland does here is he describes Christ as a knight, but the Christ knight is dressed as a plowman as he, he doesn't have his weapons, doesn't have his sword. He's dressed as a common laborer, which would have been extremely scandalous. It's even more scandalous than this, but our, our sort of rough equivalent is like if a really powerful tech lord or CEO or whatever dressed like a construction worker, right? Where there's this clear divide between them and you're, you're making a big statement by aligning yourself that way. Langland's Christ Knight is this sort of radically division destroying knight who's coming to save the work and the souls and the bodies of all different kinds of people. And it, it's just this beautiful image. And yeah, and I found it really moving as well. It's just something I'd never thought of much before until I read this chapter of your book, which is Christ's suffering, his fighting for ourselves, our souls and bodies, which includes the work that we do, the timeline of our lives along which we do things that that without him could be stolen and never returned, could be yeah. could end in futility, but nothing that he's in charge of ends in futility. Nothing that he fights for is stolen and never returned. And I think that's just such a beautiful word of hope to us just as much in the 21st century with Google and clouds and and whatever else than it was, you know, when far more people were working the earth with their hands. Well, they still are. Let me just say they still are, but not in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. Right. We do different stuff down here. Grace, what uh, surprised you or challenged you the most while you were writing this book? Did you change your mind about anything? We already talked a little bit about the judge. And I, as I said, that was a chapter that uh, I felt very intimidated by and really didn't want to write about. Uh, I had this very dichotomized idea of justice versus mercy, where one is going to rule out over the other. And really coming to a place where I thought, oh no, I actually, I need the judgment of Jesus the judge. I need it on, on my soul. You know, moving to that place was really surprising and shocking rather than seeing judgment as something to be avoided. You know, if you ask for the judgment of God on your life, it's going to change you. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's welcoming the justice of God and, and hoping for the justice of God on the whole world, including myself. That was a big change for me, to be frank. Another thing that I think if you can't get away, if you're reading the works of the past, you're going to start wondering and thinking about your own cultural limitations and blinders and trying to be more open to a sort of humble reading. And so as I worked on like one chapter is Jesus, the good medieval Christian. And uh, this is something that we haven't gotten away from is the temptation to write about Jesus as if he's exactly like us in our cultural context, in our current moment with our values and our concerns, many of which are very good, very valid, but we tend to project ourselves onto him much more than recognizing that he came to live among us and be like us, but not become like us in our, in our sort of blind spots, you know, 
a lot of the ways in which you think of Jesus are extremely contingent on how you've been raised and your own culture that you live in. And so some of the ways I think about Jesus are fairly unrecognizable to medieval people and vice versa. And you go, oh, okay, well, in some ways I'm I'm probably on to some good things that they weren't on to. And in other ways, they're on to good things that I'm not on to. So that as a general practice was definitely a source of a lot of growth for me and also, you know, unpleasant in a lot of ways where you have to face your your own limitations and welcome them, <laughs> not ignore them. <laughs> so that sounds hard, Grace. <laughs> Wow. A challenge, not only across time, but just a great building that muscle, just a great way to engage today with neighbors, with other Christian neighbors. And I think that's the funny, surprising thing is that you start to read the works of the past. And if you're being, you know, open and honest and humble in how you approach it, you start to realize this is actually an exercise. I'm exercising a muscle that I have to use all the time with other people right now who I radically disagree with or who I have conflict with or who I love. And I'm just rubbing elbows with all the time. And there's just that friction there, you know? So there's, I think that's what is wonderful about reading the works of the past is that you have the opportunity to do that in a more contained environment. I'm not going to hurt Nicholas Love or Julian of Norwich by wrestling and disagreeing with them. And I can do it in a much more direct you know, way, giving me practice to do it better with my neighbors and enemies in, in my life in 2023 right now. So, so true. So true. Well, if one of your premises is that cultural context, we need to be aware of how it limits and opens up the way that we're able to relate to Jesus to flip it around. What are some of the ways that we have been more open to seeing Jesus since the middle ages that you think they might be fascinated by? I think one thing that immediately is, is obvious to me is that in the, in today's church, you know, depending on your tradition, but I think in a lot of ways and in a lot of places, we, we have a much easier time to see the image of God in people who are really different from us, more capacity to say, okay, in a person who doesn't share my faith, in a in a Jewish person or a Muslim person, mm. God is there still. In in medieval cultures and times, to see the Saracens or the Jews as being really similar to oneself was a much harder, much harder sell. Anti-Semitism was rife. Obviously, the Crusades were going on. There was a lot of really bad stuff happening in regards to seeing our enemies as people we need to love. They were much better at seeing that within the body, within the bounds of baptism, but they were not good at seeing it beyond that. The church uh, had a real dark, dark spot in history with that. I would extend that to include, obviously, there was a lot of misogyny. Women were not. So while they were in some ways, you know, seeing God in in femininity in ways that we are frightened by and unfamiliar with, like Jesus as a mother, or in some of the imagery of Christ as a lover, on a day-to-day basis, they were not extending necessarily those that theological richness into, you know, actual women living in their space. I think, I hope that the church has gotten better at that too. You know, obviously this is pre-Reformation stuff that I'm looking at. So some some things that really emerged much more with the Reformation, like 
vernacular engagement with the scriptures, reading in your native tongue and discovering the value of that, that would have been a lot less appreciated back then. Or, you know, some of the theology, you get into more of a doctrine of works rather than of grace. Sometimes we read that too strongly back onto them because of the emphasis of the Reformation. I think a lot of that can be unfair, but there was an imbalance that needed to be checked. And I think the, the, Hmm. you know, we today have a, have a really good, well, obviously we don't do it all the time, but we have, we have a solid emphasis on grace that in, in both Catholic and Protestant traditions that the medieval church at times lacked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, grace, I am curious is there anyone who's writing in the Middle Ages that you'd recommend for us to read? Yes, absolutely. If you like poetry, there are a lot of really beautiful and interesting and challenging lyric poems of Christ on the cross from the Middle Ages calling us to uh, grapple with our sin and think about penitence, uh, what we have done and left undone. So that I think that's one, if you like poetry, that's a really good an interesting way to, to engage with Lent. Is there a specific, is there a specific poet that you would recommend? Well, most lyric poetry is anonymous in the middle ages. So you can find a good collection. My, you know, there, there are quite a few collections of poetry and translation that are more accessible. There's also Carlton Brown's Oxford collections, which are in Middle English. So you'd have to commit to tackling Middle English, which you can. It's not as hard as you think it is if you give it a, a deliberate attention, but it, it is more of a challenge for sure. But in the mid-century of, of last century, he had some collections that have a really wonderful array of crucifixion poetry and penitential poetry. Often Uh, these collections have sections of poetry that are about the crucifixion that are challenging, interesting, clearly display some different ideas than ours that uh, Mm. ask you to, you know, wrestle a little bit, which is always a good exercise. Fabulous. Um, If you are not feeling poetry, I always tell everybody who hasn't read Julian of Norwich that, you know, she is such a wonderful spiritual teacher and has so much to say about the nature of love, who we are in Christ who Christ is. And I think I've actually done reading groups of her in Lent for, for different places. And those have always been such a rich and fruitful Mm. experience. So Mm. if you'd like to read her in translation, I like college and Walsh's translation for the classics of Western spirituality series. I think the last recommendation we had was the penguin books recommendation. So it's nice to have another option. And also you can read it in the middle English if you give it a shot and you want to. Yes, you can. And I think I always tell people this. I'm like, I think if you want to give it a shot, doing a text like Julian is great because you can have the translation in front of you so that you're not missing things, but you can look at the middle English. The words are different. They sometimes mean different things than our modern English, even in the best translations. And the combination can be a delightful and challenging experience. And middle English is my favorite thing. So it's so, it's so delicious. I mean, you get things like instead of humble, you might get the word homely, which, Mm -hmm. which, oh, it's that's humble, but it might also mean a little unattractive, but it might also mean has to do with your home. 
and yeah. the warmth or intimacy of the home or the word kindness has all sorts of oh, stuff it's about a theologically it. loaded word that you would never know judging by how we use kind today in modern english but kind, it's very rich yeah. kind can we let's let's do a whole podcast series about the word kind in middle english you could. And we would have do a big podcast series on it. We would have 14 subscribers to that podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I've been speaking today with Dr. Grace Hammond. Grace, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church. If you appreciated this episode, take a moment to share with friends or colleagues, or please leave us a good review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. In two weeks, we're off to the Holy Land for a Lenten conversation with author Andrew Mays. From the footsteps of Abraham and Sarah to tourists on the Via Dolorosa to helicopters over holy sites, we'll walk some of Jerusalem and Gaza's most well-known roads and explore what God is up to among the rocks and trees, people and history, risks and hope of this beautiful and heartbreaking land. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson, and I'm Amber Noel, your host. It's been good to be with you. Peace.